Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Rio Manucci, coming to you from Radio 4EB in Minjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Privo plays a role on lots of different levels. Most recently, they had success in helping to advocate for the recent drug diversion changes. A new peer support service in Queensland has opened for substance harm reduction. We have all the details. Also, how the biggest review of Australia universities will look like. And later today... I've spoken to many parents over the years and I'm heartbroken to know that we fail kids from the beginning. We fail kids from primary school. We fail people from the start. While people with disability are getting more into work, education and technology will be the key for inclusion. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We are across Australia. Thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, this weekend, the LGBTIQ plus community will march at Mardi Gras in Sydney. But this year's celebrations come just days after the deaths of Jesse Beard and Luke Davies at the hands of a serving police officer reigniting the conversation about police's relationship with queer Australians. Police will be able to march out of uniform, a decision independent Senator Lydia Thorpe is concerned about. She was at the Mardi Gras last year protesting the police's involvement in the event and was escorted out. National Radio News political correspondent Noah Sekim asked Senator Thorpe her thoughts about last year's event and this year's tragedy. Yeah, it's a bit trauma- re-traumatising for me actually because what people, you know, what the media didn't report was that myself and another Aboriginal woman were assaulted behind the scenes by a, a police officer in uniform uh, at the Mardi Gras. And yes, we did say, you know, F the police, if I can not swear on the radio, but we did say that because we were protesting the fact that police were participating and the fact that Mardi Gras exists because of, you know, fighting against police violence. It was it was surreal. Uh, and so we went out protesting and were thrown to the ground uh, and the police tried to take my handbag and my my girlfriend grabbed the bag off the police and I was pursued by this one particular officer and that's why I hung on to that truck because I didn't feel safe and there was no way of getting out of the gates because they were so high. So I am, I mean, it's just, I'm just devastated about what's happened and it's it's just a shame that it takes the loss of life for people to realise that this is a very serious issue that needs to be taken into account. And if you want police at the Mardi Gras, then why do they have to be have their own float and, and march in uniform when 
when it triggers a lot of people, not just black followers, it, you know, trans, LGBTIQ, it, it triggers people, um, from their experiences with, with the violence that, um, police, some police represent and continue to perpetrate. Um, have you heard anything kind of on the ground from people in more in relation to, I guess, I mean, in the last year we've heard the inquiry into historic violence against people of the queer community by police for a 50-year period. And the reaction to that was the police will do their best and that was pretty much it. Have you heard how people are feeling heading into this weekend or even just in general since that? Um, I've had a, I've had quite a few people reach out that were really happy that the police weren't going to participate or that the Mardi Gras uh, organisation asked them not to attend. A lot of people are really happy about that and it is a relief. Police need to know their place and, and know that, well, they need to stop investigating themselves and maybe we'll get somewhere but... From what I'm hearing on the ground, that, and I'm usually part of the protest side of things and the, there is a protest float that obviously I was a part of last year, they will continue to call out the participation of police at the Mardi Gras. And I empathise because what happens to trans mob and LGBTIQ mob happens to us. Like we're, we're one in the same and we don't allow the police to to march at our marches or rallies, not even at NAIDOC. Um, we know that there are police there and they uh, respectfully come out of uniform because they happen to be a family member or a mate of somebody, but it's not here we are as the police in uniform and we're so great because they're not and they need to do better. Will you be attending tomorrow night? No, I won't be attending. I'm going home to country to heal from a week in Parliament. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say to everybody who is attending, have an incredible time. Like it was a, it was just magical last year besides what transpired. Just the, oh, there's just so much excitement and love and, acceptance and yeah I just want everyone to have a beautiful loving time lead with love and heal from what's happened recently. Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe there speaking with National Radio News Noah Second. Across Australia you're listening to The Wire Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. A new service providing information on harm reduction for Queenslanders using substances was launched this week. Peer Connect, launched by Queensland Injectors of Voice for Advocacy and Action, will provide peer support, advocacy and information to the community. With the federal government's National Drug Strategy Household Survey released yesterday, the Wire, Edwalda Jordan, asked peer support worker Emily Cooper what motivated the organisation to launch the Peer Connect. Peer Connect is a free confidential service. It was It's a telephone service providing support to people who use substances in Queensland. That includes people on the opioid treatment program, 
It was formed in response to a need for specialised peer support services for people who use substances or have used in the past. And this was, there's great work that's being done at places like Quinn with amazing peer workers. But unfortunately, there's just not enough of them. So Peer Connect provides access to specialised peer support for folks all across Queensland. And that's wherever they might be located, even including people in prisons or other institutions. All right. So the federal government released a report yesterday about alcohol and substance abuse in Australia. In your experience, yeah. what are the attitudes towards substances from the community? It really varies. And a lot of progress has been made recently, thanks to organizations like River. But I guess on the one hand, you've got a greater awareness and understanding around substance abuse now, or use or abuse, and an understanding that substance use has always had a place in society throughout our history. And that's really great. But at the same time, whenever progress seems to be made, there seems to always be parts of society that push back on that. And, you know, even though most people who use substances every day functioning members of the community, you just sort of have to look at like the negative portrayal of people who use substances in mainstream media on pretty much any given day to see the strong stigma and bias against people who use substances and particularly those that use illicit substances, people who inject drugs and those with dependency issues. Now, what sort of advocacy is Quiva doing for the rights of those who have used substances and those who use substances at this point? I guess for those who might not be aware, um, Quiva has a really long history of advocating for people who use substances and it spans back to the 1980s when they formed mainly in response to the HIV AIDS crisis that was emerging at the time um, and they were instrumental in forming and getting funding for the first needle and syringe programs in Queensland. And so I guess now like we have programs such as Peer Connect which are able to happen due to the work that those Um, early advocates did. But yeah, we, Quiver it plays a role on lots of different levels. Re most recently, they had success in helping to advocate for the recent drug diversion changes, which were pretty much the biggest changes in drug policy and law reform that's happened in decades. So what are some of the barriers or stigma that Queenslanders face in the healthcare system when using substances? Oh, <laughs> so many. So obviously the biggest one is just stigma and we hear that all the time from people everywhere really and there's just such pervasive myths and stereotypes about people that use substances and even healthcare workers unfortunately are not immune from these either. So unfortunately we see people put off attending hospital even in really quite emergency or dire circumstances, just due to having such painful or harmful past experiences, particularly, again, people who inject drugs, um, as well as people with dependency or, you know, pregnancy, birth, parenting, where people are frequently kind of um, punished or de even demonized for having an opioid uh, or other drug dependency when they're pregnant. What else is Peer Connect doing for those who want to minimize risk and where can they get more information about the program? Some of the other projects that we're doing at the moment include High Ground, which has been running for a couple of years now. And that sort of aims to like 
safer drug use, rave partying, that sort of stuff. They they do really awesome work at um, music festivals and just create sort of a judgment-free space and offer support and harm reduction education. I think like you, you guys can you can look up highground.com or go to quiver.org.au for any links to Highground. We're also Quivers on Insta and Facebook. And yeah, if anyone would like to speak to anyone from Quiver or is interested in learning more, just go to quiver.org.au. This was Emily Cooper from Queensland Injectors of Voice and Advocacy and Action speaking with The Wire. Eduardo Jordan. You are listening to The Wire Independent Current Affairs on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Real Manucci in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Terry on Tubob Radio. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. The federal government's final universities accord report has been termed a blueprint for education reform over the next decade. The report highlights a vision towards a more equitable higher education sector, proposing changes to increase fairness and accessibility for all. Its 47 recommendations address funding, governance, financial support for placement, and student fees, along with increasing student attainment to 80% of Australians in the workforce by 2050. The report recommends boosting students from disadvantaged backgrounds. This is the biggest review of the sector since 2008. The Wires' Emma Worsk spoke to Pro-Vice-Chancellor at Western Sydney University, Professor Andy Marks. This is the first real attempt we've had at university reform in over a decade. The Whitlam reforms of the 70s and the Dawkins reforms of the 80s and 90s are perhaps comparable. Of course, government's yet to adopt any of the recommendations, so it's still a report. It suggests that we need to think about higher education beyond the realms of university gates and think about it as something for society more broadly. What did the report uh, reveal about the link between higher education, Australia's evolving industry and economic health. Professor Mary O'Kane, the chair of the report, put it really well at the launch when she said, this is about the kind of society we want to be. Education is the biggest agent for transformation, for social uplift, for economic uplift. If we look at the reforms just as university reforms, then that payoff won't happen. For those that are thinking purely through an economic lens, the report's recommending a very drastic uplift in the number of qualified people in Australia by 2050. They're targeting an interesting group to get that to happen. What were some of the biggest gaps that were made evident in that review, do you think? What we saw in the review was a calling out of the fact that it's a quite an inequitable system we have in higher education, particularly university education. Separate from the report, through our own analysis, we've seen equity groups, people who are from low income brackets and women and Indigenous Australians are faring the worst within our university system. Access for people to university from poorer backgrounds at the big universities, the ones that are registering the big profits, that's declined in the last five years. So less people from disadvantaged backgrounds are making it into the system. The reform was proposed is an absolute about face of that. With equity and social cohesion a focus, what are some of the main recommendations in the report that speak to this? 
Some of the boldest targets are around uh, lifting the participation of people from rural backgrounds, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, whereas they're currently the subject of some bespoke university programs. Those programs aren't working. The figures of those people at uni are going backwards. This report creates very significant incentives to bring people that are otherwise marginalised into higher education or at least give them the opportunity. It's very hard for universities, the larger ones, to justify that exclusion when they're registering some very significant profits, upwards of the billions. It's one thing to get more people into the higher education system, but it can be a challenge with that work-life and study balance for many to stay. What recommendations address this? There's a few things around the way that we look at HECS. So there's some suggestions, not before time, that HECS is a more fairer system. Currently, we saw at the tail end of the Morrison government changes introduced that made humanities or arts students pay significantly more for their uh, degrees and, and winding up with debt that takes a lifetime to clear. The impost of debt, too, on women in particular, who, who may take time out of the workforce to raise children, etc., or for other reasons, that's incredibly difficult, especially in a housing crisis. Reforms to HECS will be important. There has been support but also opposition. Can you say anything about why there is such contention there? National Union of Students, the peak representative body of students in higher education, welcomes the report but say it's not enough, falling short in recommending concrete changes to improve accessibility and fairness in the everyday realities of students. The way I spoke with NUS National President Nari Bogman. We were glad to see that a lot of the key issues that students had been crying out for, like placements, like HEX, were on the table overall. We found the report quite vague, quite non-committal. The real challenge now from our perspective is going to be watching the government and how they interpret real change out of these recommendations. How do you want to see those proposed changes actually transpire? Well, the NUS was involved with this process since day one and what we're going to be pushing for is for the government to actually go further than a lot of these recommendations. Recommendation 14, which is around placements, The NUS calls for paid placements at a minimum wage rate. The recommendation only calls for financial support for placements, not for an actual wage, not for actual remunerations. We interpret financial support to mean a bursary or to mean something of that sort. We don't think it's good enough to give students a one-off payment. That's not the same as, as getting a wage. The report highlights a push towards equity. How do you see the role of education in addressing systemic disadvantage and inequality? Education from the NUS's perspective should be a right. It should be something that everybody, regardless of the background they come from, everybody is entitled to an education. I think we welcome a lot of other measures to promote equity as seen in the report. Of course, we have issues, this grouping of different subsections of the population together. Not enough has been done in this report to actually go through and think about the specific needs and specific differences between different diverse groups. Hopefully, we will see the government do that work between now and, and when they commit to what they're going to action. That was NUS National President Nari Boogeyman speaking with The Wire's Emma Wosk. According to the Department of Social Services, 48% of Australians with a disability are employed compared to 80% from those without a disability. Dinesh Palipana is a doctor, lawyer and disability advocate who wants more inclusion for people with disabilities in the workforce. He has recently been appointed as ambassador of Ariba Group, an organization looking for the well-being of people with disabilities. 
The why is Eduardo Jordan asked Dr. Palipana what's his vision for people with disabilities to thrive at work. I've spoken to many parents over the years and I'm heartbroken to know that we fail kids from the beginning. We fail kids from primary school, we fail kids from high school, we fail people from the start. I think we need to start right at the beginning. So I think we need to start when the kids are young and give them the best opportunities at education. But there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done across the primary and secondary education sector. There's work done to be in tertiary education as well because, again, I speak to many students who want to pursue a certain profession or a vocation, but the tertiary institutions are not always welcoming to them. So there is a lot of work to be done. But again, I think it's about really changing ideas and changing the mindset of educators and institutions to make sure that these kids have the best opportunity at life. Because the one thing that will empower someone to gain a job to live a full life and even to have good health and to make better decisions is education. Now you've been involved in promoting opportunities in the workplace for people with disabilities and you've been advocating a lot for the last four years or so probably more. Have we progressed in breaking barriers in the workplace for Australians with disabilities? I think we're starting to crack it and I think there are some employers that I've worked with who are well starting to change. So it's nice to see particular employers and particular institutions starting to change the way they think about these things. But I think we still have a long way to go. And in employment broadly, we haven't moved the needle for many decades, which is really disappointing. Now, one of the important things or, you know, an important thing to evaluate and assess, you know, the workplace now is technology. How is technology shaping more opportunities in employment for Australians with a disability? Technology is incredible. I think we're at a time, we're at a really exciting time, right? I mean, if you think about the frontier, we have things like upper and lower limb exoskeletons, we have thought control, we have all this kind of uh, thing, virtual reality, augmented reality. So there is so much, there's so much. And in my own practice, technology has bridged a number of physical barriers and has made me more efficient. And interestingly, it has made me more efficient than I would have been had I not had the spinal cord injury in some areas as well. So I think technology really bridges a lot of barriers. The thing is, people with disability can be at the frontier of this because they are naturally problem solvers. They're naturally early adapters, partly out of necessity. But when you start to use this technology, you see, oh gosh, actually it makes a big difference for everyone in the workplace. So this is a really exciting time where, you know, historically our imaginations were limited by the technology that we had. But today, technology is only limited by our imaginations. So there's so much we can do. And uh, there's so much funding around the place for this stuff too. There's job access. So, so there are ways in which people can access this technology to enable them at work. Now, if a company wants to start this inclusion in the workplace but has no idea on how to start, what would be a first step to start with in your opinion? So many things you can do. I think uh, you can start to have conversations around with people with disability. I'm always open for a phone call or email, so even look me up or anyone. There are a number of advocates for inclusive employment. There are groups like Ariba, which you can talk to. But it's even about welcoming people with disability. So, you know, in your job, add, just say we welcome people with disability or we welcome, you know, you can word it however you want because often people with disability think, geez, I don't even know if I can apply for this. I don't even know if I have a shot. So even those simple things make a difference. But if I could encourage you to do one thing, it's just to start with one person. You know, for me, it just started with one and then one has become many. There are a number of student doctors and there's a number of junior doctors now in Australia working disability with a wheelchair. So you just have to 
start with one and that starts to change minds and we've seen this in the medical profession where suddenly senior senior doctors have gone actually this this can work so just start with one be welcoming and have open and frank conversations fantastic Dinesh well that would be all on my side is there anything else you would like to add I think the studies have shown the more inclusive your workplace is for people with disability for a diverse workforce the less absenteeism there is the more innovation there is the happier the workplace is so data is there to show that actually this is not just a human rights issue but it's a good business case and when we start to shift that thinking and we want to give things a go it not only benefits the person with disability but it benefits an organization and it benefits our community as well and i promise if you just say yes if you just give it a try it, the the result will be incredible 2021 Queensland Australian of the year Dr Dinesh Palipana there speaking with the wires Eduardo Jordan and unfortunately that's the end of the show today thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia the wire is a co-production between community radio stations 2SER in Sydney Radio Adelaide 3ZZZ 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane with the great support of Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network, we'll see you next week, same time, on your local station. And if you would like to listen to any of our stories again, you can go on our website at thewire.org.au. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jigara countries where this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today The Wire comes to you from Radio 4EB in Menjin, Brisbane. I'm Rio Manucci. Thank you so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.